All right, let's open our Bibles this morning to Jude, verse 9-10. There's a wedding this afternoon. It's, uh, I don't think anybody knows the couple. It's over in the Cooper house. And uh, usually we don't do weddings on Sunday. That's more uh, uh, a scheduling issue of uh, availability and things. But as I began to look at, at that, I, I thought that now, I'm not advocating weddings on Sunday, I, kind of full schedule, but, uh, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing because it is about Christ and his church, what we come to worship. And the wedding is about a reflection of that relationship of Christ and his church between the groom and the bride. So I thought, oh, Sunday is not a bad day, theologically speaking, for weddings. Scheduling, uh, not so good. But for theological reasons, it's not too bad. This couple has known each other. I think they've been dating since they were three or something. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, they'll, they'll do fine. So uh, Jude, verses 9 and 10. So let's stand, if you're able, today as we read this. And really, I'm going to begin in 8 and go through 8, 9, and 10. So let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, ask that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us and open our eyes to it, that we might clearly see what you have for us today, that we might have understanding hearts and minds. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Verse 8, yet in the same manner these men, that reverts back to verse 4, also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. Now that's the intro really to 9 and 10. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. This is a pretty straightforward appearing passage. It's not a very easy passage. Um, It's it's easy to understand and work through. The hard part is, well, what do I take away with this from this today? When I leave this place, how am I going to understand this battle between Michael, the archangel, and Satan over over the body of Moses? Okay, that's the issue for us today. Now, you might also wonder about this and say, well, gee, Rand, I've read the Bible and I just don't remember this section anywhere but here. Okay, I don't remember reading that Michael and Satan uh, came to to do a dispute over the body of Moses. Uh, So where does that fit in, in in these things, in in the picture of Scripture here? Well, Jude refers to it as an actual event. This is not something that is figurative. Uh, It falls and flows perfectly within the point that he is making uh, about the apostates being here and what they look like and the things that they do. Uh, And Jude is a canonical book, canonical meaning it is part of the canon. So it is here within the book. Jude refers to it as an actual historic event. So therefore it must be an actual historic event. But the rest of scripture and in particular the Old Testament is silent about this dispute between Michael and Satan. Now back in Deuteronomy 34 it talks about the 
burial of Moses. It says, uh, and God buried Moses in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Uh, but to this day, no one knows where his grave is. So nobody knows where the grave of Moses is. And in, according to scripture, it is God, the ultimate authority that has placed his body somewhere. And you might ask the question, well, Rand, why is Satan interested in Moses' body? Okay. Um, I mean, I don't think there's going to be a big fight over my body when I die. Uh, so why was there a big fight over Moses' body? Well, let's look at it from Satan's uh, perspective. Here you have Moses. He is the one who has seen God face to face. Remember, there at the burning bush, and he came back, and the, and the glory was upon him. He had to cover his face and all this. And, and he is the one who has communicated with God. He is the instrument that God has used to, to get his people out of bondage and led them through the desert and on and on and on. And I'm thinking, if I'm putting myself in Satan's shoes, so to speak, if I can get that body, and if I can take it over to some pagan place and put it on display, okay, what's going to happen? Well, the Israelites are going to go, well, gee, Moses' body is over there. Let's go check it out. Or let's go make some sort of pilgrimage over to Moses' body. Now, I can remember uh, being in Russia and standing in line for three hours to see the body of Lenin. And you get to spend about 15 seconds walking through the tomb, looking at his body. And he's, you know, he's been dead a while. And um, uh, I, there is, I have some uh, funeral business in my background. So I looked at him in a, in a certain way. And you could see some deterioration. I don't want to get too graphic. But, you know, you can't be dead that long and not have a little deterioration. So everybody makes this pilgrimage there, and they look at the body, and, and, and you know, they get off work and, and all of these things. Well, if I'm Satan, I'm thinking, if I can get people's eyes off of this God that they cannot see, and their eyes on this body of Moses that got them out of the desert and led them, then I can take their focus away from this God and on this dead body, Okay. So there is this battle between Moses, or between Satan and Michael about this body. Now, as we said, there is no um, mention anywhere else in Scripture about this battle. So we have to turn to what we call an apocryphal book to get some history on this. And the book has uh, is it's called the Testament of Moses or the Assumption of Moses. Now, this is when we say apocryphal book, it is not a canonical book like Jude. It means it's not in the New Testament. But it records a piece of history that Jude says is correct. So that portion of that book or that document, the Testament or Assumption of Moses, must be correct because the guy who is correct refers to it as an actual event. Now, these works are not as a whole in existence today, but we can reconstruct from the early church fathers' uh, studies what this last portion dealing with this battle between Satan and Michael uh, was. So let me read from that. Joshua accompanied Moses up Mount Nebo, where God showed Moses the land of promise. Moses then sent Joshua back to the people to inform them of Moses' death, and Moses died. God sent Michael to remove the body of Moses to another place and bury it there. But Samael, the devil, opposed him, disputing Moses' right to honorable burial. 
the devil brought against Moses a charge of murder because of the Egyptian Moses had killed years before. But this was nothing more than slander against Moses, and Michael, not tolerating the slander, said to the devil, May the Lord rebuke you, devil. At that the devil took flight, and Michael removed the body to the place commanded by God. Thus no one saw the burial of Moses. That would be the, the, um, the, the compilation from the various materials in the Assumption of Moses. That would be the narrative of this event that Jude is referring to here. So I'm going to give you some background on Michael and angels before we get into what we do with this passage in particular. Now Michael's name means who is like God. So and that's not a question, it's a statement. Who Michael, who is like God? So all you Michaels out there, you're somewhat like God. Okay? But as soon as you get proud of pride about as soon as you get pride in your heart about that, he's going to wallop you, so don't get proud. Okay? His name is common in the Old Testament. Daniel refers to this angel, Michael, in chapters 10 and chapters 12, uh, as he opposes and overcomes the demons and battles Satan, as Satan tries to influence the hearts of the rulers of Persia and of Greece against the people of God. Uh, apocryphal literature teaches that there are seven archangels, and we find that four of them are named. Remember, John has the seven angels around the throne. Uh, the four angels' names are Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and Uriel. Okay? Michael is the leader of the heavenly armies that fight against Satan. Turn over to Revelation chapter 12. Michael fights against Satan, against his fallen angels. They drove them from heaven in the early days okay, and kicked them out and in the sense that uh, Michael is the, uh, uh, how do I want to say this, the sergeant at arms in heaven, so to speak, if I had to put a, uh, 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 in the vernacular. The Lord says, go and do this, and Michael does. He's kind of the enforcer there. And then we see in, in times yet to come, here in Revelation 12, verse 7, it talks about, and there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging, raging, waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay, so that is the work of Michael as he leads this battle against Lucifer. Now, he knew Lucifer. Angels were created pretty much all together, apparently, at the same time. He knew Lucifer when he was the son of the morning. He knew the other demons that were created. He knows he has power over Satan because the Lord has given Michael this power and this authority. And that Satan is fallen. Yet, as we see... Michael defers to the Father in his actions concerning Satan. Okay, we'll see more of that in just a moment. Now, we uh, jokingly say, uh, you know, let's spend our time figuring out how many angels dance on the head of a pin. Uh, there was, at a certain time back in the Middle Ages, a, a theological movement, believe it or not, to actually determine that. Okay? Uh, they didn't have TV then or video games, so they spent their time arguing about that. Well, how many angels are there? Deuteronomy 33 says myriads of angels. So that is an untold number. Now, angels have been created to serve God, and they serve God 
in different classes of angels. We have uh, Michael, as an example, who is the chief prince, so to speak, or the chief of the archangels. Others, angels' classes are cherubims and seraphs. Uh, We see from Scripture that angels have distinct personalities. They have names from Luke chapter 1. And let's turn over to Luke chapter 15, and we'll read a little bit more about angels here. And this is one of my favorite things. You think, well, what do angels do? Okay, what, what do they spend their time doing? Well, um, they spend their time obeying the Lord, serving Him, uh, being His arm and, and whatever He calls them to do. Uh, there are angels around the throne, as we saw. There are angels in heaven. They worship our Heavenly Father. Uh, but here is something that, that, that is interesting to know about angels. Luke 15, verse 10. Now, how many angels are there? Deuteronomy says there are myriads, myriad of angels. 15, verse 10, In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One sinner who repents, and the myriad of angels rejoice. Now, there is an old, an old I guess it's my era, gospel song that the Gaither Vocal Band sang. How many of you have ever heard of the Gaither Vocal Band? Okay, all right, okay. I'm going to give you the words. I won't sing it, probably not. At the completion of the golden gate, no, the angels did not celebrate. And when the right boys flew their bird, no angelic shouts were heard. Now when the light bulb first lit up the town, no, the angels did not dance around. And when the man stepped on the moon, they didn't sing a victory tune. No, heaven doesn't strike up a band for any old occasion at hand. It's got to be a special thing to make those angels sing. Now, when the Model T first hit the street, it didn't bring all heaven to its feet. And when the first computer was born, they didn't blow Gabriel's horn. When the United States became a nation, there was no angelic celebration. But when one lost sinner comes back home, they jump for joy around the throne. There's only one thing that we're sure about that will make those angels jump and shout. It's when a sinner makes the Lord his choice, that's when the angels rejoice. Okay? I I think that's good theology there, that the angels get very excited. Now, just think about that. When one individual becomes a believer, when one individual receives the Lord as Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Now, in history, when you put that up against the man on the moon, the first mass-produced automobile, the first computer, the first thing to fly. The world goes, well, what's so big about you and your, your change of life? Okay? The myriad of angels does not rejoice when man steps on the moon. But when you became a believer, when the Lord opened your eyes and you understood your need for forgiveness and you got on your knees or whatever it was and asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, to forgive you of your sins, there was an angelic celebration and a rejoicing that is unmatched. And that was just for you. And then when the next person did it, they rejoiced again. Why? Because you were lost and now you were found. You were an enemy of God and all of a sudden you are now his child. Now, I I, I know that's kind of... I don't know, what's the right word? Ethereal or something? We can't put our fingers on it other than it says the angels rejoice when we believe. We can't hear their voices. 
We can't hear their rejoicing. But I tell you what, I bet you those who have gone before us who are in heaven, those who are in the Lord's presence, they can hear that rejoicing. They, they may even be part of that crowd. Not only says angels, but, you know, they see it in heaven. They may hear this great roar and this great rejoicing and the praising of our Heavenly Father when one individual becomes a believer. There's only one thing we're sure about that will make those angels jump and shout. It's when a sinner makes the Lord his choice. That's when the angels rejoice. Okay, now angels are in heaven. They also are interested in learning about man's salvation. There are things which happen to men that angels long to look upon. That's from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now conversely, we have angels in Scripture. They, they can lie from John chapter 8. Angels have faith. They, they know that Jesus is true. And what do they do? They shiver. Okay, they are frightened of that truth. They don't actually have saving faith, but they know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And as we've seen before, angels can sin and, and live immorally, and there is punishment for that. Now, there's a distinction between men and angels, and uh, part of it is clear. We, it's not as if I know, you know, that I know there's, it's a wonderful life, and Angels get their wings when we ring the bell and those types of things. But we really don't, we don't find that in Scripture anywhere. Uh, scripture doesn't always make good TV, but it's true. But there's a distinction between men and angels. Men have a body and a soul. Okay, We have both. Angels are created beings that have no physical body. Therefore, they are simply these angels, uh, these uh, created individuals that have this... Um, uh, I don't know, a soul, they have something, obviously, punishment for angels is eternal. Remember, we studied a few weeks ago, those locked in the darkness. Okay? Man is related to other humans by family ties. Okay? Man has a body and a soul, angels do not. Secondly, man is related to other humans by family ties. Angels exist without families. They are created individually. Angels do not marry. Uh, they are immortal. They are invisible. Man belongs to a human family, therefore we have humanity. Angels don't have angelity. Okay? They don't have the same kind of existence that we do. Number three, man was formed from the dust of the earth, crowned with glory and honor, and appointed to rule God's creation. All of these things come from Scripture, obviously. Angels are created spirits and are appointed to minister and to serve. Number four, Adam fell into sin. The second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, has come to redeem God's fallen creation. Okay? There's no redemption for fallen angels. Okay? Christ did not come to give his life for those angels who had sinned. Remember, he went to the deepest, darkest parts of, of hell where there is no light, and those angels who fell from Genesis 6 are true held in chains and he went down there and proclaimed victory to them he didn't proclaim the gospel to them he just proclaimed victory to them angels are not redeemed by christ and number five it is men not angels who are created in the image of god okay so there are particular things that men are blessed with 
that angels are not, and angels long to look upon those things. And we think, wouldn't it be cool to be Michael and to have this power and this, this ability, but yet those angels long to look upon the things that we have. Do you remember that? All right. So what's the point that we need, we need or we can walk away from this morning with this? Turn back to Jude. Look at verse 9. Michael and all his authority and all his power and the call upon his life, so to speak, by the Lord of what he is supposed to do. Remember, he is the Lord's enforcer, so to speak. He does all these great things, but yet we see his attitude and his position before the Lord. He is empowered to do all of these things, yet when it comes, he comes face to face with Satan over this uh, dispute and argued about the body of Moses, he does not wallop Satan. Well, that's the great theological term. doesn't wallop Satan. He doesn't um, do anything like that. He simply says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. Now, he is God's powerful instrument. And yet... In, in the dignity of what the Lord has given to him and his humility and understanding and knowing his position before the Lord. He has so much power and so much knowledge, yet he is careful even to respect the dignity of a fallen angel. In the sense that he doesn't wallop him, he says, the Lord rebuke you. In this sense, I want you to understand, he had authority over Satan, but he defers to the Lord. He says, the Lord is the one who will do his will on your life. I mean, in the sense that if I'm Michael, I might say, I mean, Satan, I'd like to kick you out and destroy you and do all these things. But the Lord has his purposes for you and he will rebuke you. So he does not speak out of his own authority, but defers to the Lord. Remember, Jesus did not come to do his own will, but the will of the Father. Okay, And we, we covered it in Sunday school just briefly today. The Son is the same essence as the Father. He has the same power, the same authority. All things were created by Him and for Him and through Him. Without Him, nothing was created that has come into existence. Yet He defers to the Father. He is submissive to the will of the Father. Michael, who has all this authority, says, The Lord rebuke you. Now remember what happened to the sons of Sceva back in Acts? Uh, they go out and uh, they, 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 the sons and, and, and they go to this demon and the demon says, well, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? And they are kicked out of the house bloody and naked because they have no authority over the demons. They have no power there. One of the dangers that we face is that we think, well, I've got the Holy Spirit living in me. So if I come across a demon, I can say, demon, I rebuke you. And what's the demon going to say to us? Say, who are you? Okay. The Lord, he knows. Jesus Christ, he knows. Those names Satan fears. 
there's an illustration that I read from a, a pastor. He wrote in a book, and he was talking about his wrestling with a demon one night. There he is in his study, and he's studying away, and he heard this commotion, and there before him was a demon. And he says he and this demon wrestled for several hours, and finally he was overcoming the demon, and the demon got up, and he ran out the door and out into the snow. And the pastor says, I chased him out into the snow, and I said, demon, you come back here. I'm not done with you yet. Now, that is one studly pastor or one stupid pastor. I think he's stupid, okay? Because no mention in his narrative was anything of the Lord rebuke you. Okay, that's where the power is. The power comes through us only when we are weak and rely upon the Lord. Michael says, I've got the power, but it's the Lord's business how he will deal with Satan. It's the Lord's business. So remember, Jude is dealing with apostate false teachers who defile the flesh, they reject the lordship, and they blasphemy angels. And the blasphemy of God is not only rejecting the holy law and acting immorally, not only denying his authority, but so, being so irreverent as to usurp the prerogatives of our Heavenly Father. Michael did not usurp the prerogatives of our Heavenly Father. He deferred to the Father which demonstrates his holiness. He knew his place, his respect for the enemies of God, and it is God's business to deal with them. Okay? Turn over to Psalm 14. I think it's important that we read this psalm. There are people who lack this spiritual understanding. They lack discernment, and Jude verse 10 is going to cover that for us ever so briefly. But this kind of leads into it from Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Remember Jeremiah says, says, Who can understand the human heart? It is totally corrupt, totally corrupt. Do all the workers of wickedness not know? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the name of the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is the refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. It's a psalm calling for the restoration of Israel that, is in, that has been dispersed. Okay? But it is those who say the Lord has done this and there is no God. What's he say? The fool has said in his heart. There is no God. So Jude is dealing now in verse 10, go back to Jude, with people who have no spiritual discernment. He has just said that even this angel with all this power has spiritual discernment, but these people, verse referring to the men in verse 4, but these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Without the benefit of reason. Instinct means without the benefit of reason, without the benefit of revelation. 
They have no knowledge of the truth, so they function like unreasoning animals and revert to instinct. But the instinct of man's heart is to do whatever man's heart desires. There was a study long ago where there was a a bird that built its nest upside down in Africa. And what they did is they took some of these birds and they removed them from their place and raised them for four or five generations and then returned them to their place. And you know what those birds did after four or five generations being raised in captivity? They built their nest upside down just like they had done for generations. That's part of their instinct. Judah's saying, you don't pay attention to the Lord. You seek foolishness and you do things as if they were by instinct, but the instinct of the human heart is to do only selfish things. When men live by instinct, that we live by it sounds good to me, it feels good to me, so I'm going to go and do it. And that's nothing but trouble. Romans chapter 1 says, professing themselves to be wise, they have become fools when they act in this way. That word fools is the Greek word morons. They become morons, okay, because they do what they think is right. One of the commentators says, if a man persistently is blind to spiritual values, deaf to the call of God, and rates self-determination as the highest good, then a time will come when he cannot hear the call he has spurned, but is left to the mercy of the turbulent instincts to which he once turned in search of freedom. And those instincts, given free reign, are merciless. Lust, when indulged, becomes a killer. We do our own thing, we pay that price. So Jude teaches us that we cannot usurp the authority of God He has the power, we do not. He has the perfect plan, our job is to follow the perfect plan, even in the face of Satan. And perhaps most importantly, when it comes to his knowledge and our knowledge, God is the smart one. We are not. Yes, his plan may look like foolishness to the world, but where do you really want to walk? Do you want to walk a path that is lit by your own instinct and your own desires? Or do you want to walk a path that is lit by God's word and his will? So let's pray. Lord, we come to this passage, and it, it can be difficult, but yet it is simple. You are sovereign. And if there is ever a time in our lives where we run up against the things of Satan or one of his minions in this world, The phrase that we need to remember is the phrase that Michael used, the Lord rebuke you. The power over Satan resides in the things of Christ, resides in his work. It is his victory that we are partakers of. It is his mercy and his grace. Lord, help us to remember that you have called us from sin and given us this great gift of salvation. And the world may look at it as foolishness. The world may look at it as simply those ignorant Christians that really don't know the truth and look with pity upon us. But in reality, it is not until we are weak that we are made strong. It is not until we put aside the wisdom that we so desperately cling to and 
seek after the foolishness of God, that we are really wise. So Lord, as we wrestle with these things, as we wrestle to live these things out, may we not rely upon our own desires, upon what looks good to our own eyes, but upon those things that you put before us in your word, that our lives and all that we are will be lived to your glory, the glory of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.